Our next storyteller is Linda Straw. Linda's current job is being retired, but her first choice of a career was journalism. We're on a roll here. Starting all the way back in elementary school, she retired from mainstream reporting in 2011, but now interviews and writes for a local neighborhood magazine. Please join me in welcoming Linda Straw. than 35, you probably never knew about mimeographing. But when I wrote my first story, I was 10 years old in elementary school, and it was mimeographed. And once you see your story about the school janitor and your name in purple mimeograph ink, I was hooked. Um, my first grown-up newspaper job was at the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson. Um, I worked there my senior year in college by finishing my degree during the day and working at the newspaper from 4 p.m. until midnight. I was rich. I made $100 a week. Um, the main beat for entry-level journalists is always the police beat. And I had a lot of trouble getting the cops to tell me anything as just a college kid. But I probably uh, stewed my own prospects because I was wearing a mini skirt and high heels when I was covering my first <sighs> highway fatality. And uh, having that year of experience just allowed me to uh, have my choice of jobs once I graduated. I picked the Associated Press Wire Service. I thought it was so prestigious. I could move to the state capital of Phoenix and I would get the title of Arizona State Broadcast Editor. It was not prestigious. I spent the whole time rewriting stories that newspaper reporters had already written. I wrote them in a shorter form and a broadcast style on a manual typewriter, and then I would give them to the telegraph um, operator, this crusty old gal who'd been doing it for decades, and she would retype the entire story on a strip of yellow paper with little perforations in it. And then the broadcaster who got the story would rip it off the wire. They called broadcasters rip and read artists then. And they would go ahead on the air with the story without even stopping to learn how to pronounce the words. Um, the machine noise in that office was like working in a factory. It was just awful. I was looking forward to my lunch hour. I got back from lunch and I nearly got fired. Turns out when you work for the AP, a lunch hour is half an hour. And I was never told that. I did that for one year 
and the only thing I ever covered was a trial about a man accused of killing his girlfriend and dismembering her body. The summer after, I worked for the AP back in Tucson on the night shift. At that time, the main story in Tucson was all the big city mafia bosses had retired in Tucson, and they amused themselves by bombing each other's homes and offices. <laughs> and I'd spend most of the evening on the phone with the New York AP editors who just didn't believe some of this stuff. Then I figured out all these rewrites were not real journalism. I married an Air Force guy, and he was assigned to Little Rock Air Force Base. The first thing he did was pick up the atlas to see if there was a Little Rock in any other state besides Arkansas. <laughs> the first thing I thought of was my dad driving the family station wagon through Arkansas and saying, this is hillbilly heaven. <laughs> But as soon as we got there, I was hired pretty quickly by the evening newspaper, which was called the Arkansas Democrat. And Arkansas Little Rock was very much like Bloomington Normal. There were actually two separate cities, Little Rock on one side of the river and North Little Rock on the other side of the river. They'd never paid much attention to North Little Rock, uh, but they sent me over there to be the city hall reporter. The city was run by Mayor William F. Lehman. His nickname was Casey. He was used to just running everything in town with no questions. He'd been there for 12 years. Um, he'd appointed his son-in-law as the city attorney. <clears throat> he paid for all the city furniture from his own furniture store without any bids. And he wasn't used to having these things in the newspaper, so I started quoting him on things and reporting some of these things, and he was really, really unhappy about it. <laughs> there was one occasion when he went to California to a big municipal mayor's convention, and he took his friend, a city commissioner named John Blodgett, with him. Well... When they got back, I noticed the expense account, the money spent on that trip was just outrageous. So I called up Mr. Blodgett and I said, well, what all did you do in California? Oh, he said, we rented a beachside condo and we didn't go to the convention hotel. And we played golf and we went to bars and we had great food. It was just the most wonderful vacation. So after I got that in the newspaper, um, <laughs> The mayor locked up my office. It was, it was just a desk and a typewriter under the staircase in City Hall. But he put a lock on it, and then he told all the city employees not to speak to me. So I'm literally out on the sidewalk now trying to cover this city. And I think the mayor kind of missed me. He started doing something on the sidewalk because he missed the attention. There was an X-rated movie theater, and it opened one block from City Hall. So he hurriedly got a new law passed that pornography could not be allowed, especially in a filming situation, in the city. Then he got the Public Works 
crew out there, and he built a chain link fence right in front of the theater, right up against the front wall of the theater, about an inch away maybe. So nobody could get between the fence and the box office to buy a ticket. So then the theater owners filed suit and we all went to court on this. Well, the judge decided that he and the jury needed to see at least six of these films <laughs> to, make, to, to judge whether they were pornographic. So he had his bailiff carry the US flag out of the courtroom. He didn't want the flag exposed to this. And then as soon as the lights went out, it seemed like all the courthouse employees would lock their offices and come in to watch. It was standing room only, I'm telling <clears throat> Now, it wasn't just the mayor who was kind of goofy. We had an alderman named John O. May. He went to court because he was accused of doing illegal abortions in his garage. His alibi was that he wasn't home on the night in question, only his wife was and that he had spent the night in his trailer parked out by the lake with Dixie, who, who would be glad to testify that she was with him. And the only thing he got angry about was the headline someone else wrote on the story, and he said it intimated that there was only one bedroom in this trailer, and he wanted the world to know that there was one at either end, one for him and one for Dixie. And then we had Monty Montgomery. He was a North Little Rock policeman. He lived next door to a teenager and her mother. One night he climbed out of his bedroom window and into her bedroom. The mother heard a commotion, came out with a revolver, and shot him in the backside as he escaped out the window again. Of course, this went to court also, and the judge ruled that he needed to go see um, a doctor and get this bullet removed so that they could use it as evidence. <laughs> so um, the policeman went, um, we learned this later, uh, to a veterinarian friend of his, and he had the bullet removed and replaced with another bullet that could not have come from the mother's gun. Now the big story in North Little Rock that that I finally was able to get together was a big discount store. Um, I think it was Kmart that was going to be built on city land. And it involved a whole lot of bribes and the city attorney relative, et cetera, et cetera. Tires were slashed on my car. The brake line was cut. And I got an anonymous letter that I could get a real story about things if only I came late at night alone to a dam over the river. Well, <laughs> I stayed home. <laughs> so at that point, Casey had been mayor for 14 years. He decided not to run for re-election in 1972. But the next mayor was named Bob Roseman. He spent the night of the election tearing around town in a fire truck with a siren going. He um, 
resigned in a year because he was indicted for something. So at that point, I thought, I just need to call my dad and say he was right on talking about these hillbillies. Um, now, um, I had spent so much time with North Little Rock people in court that they put me on the court beat next. Um, we had the Pulaski County judge who was more of an administrator, and one of his jobs was to determine paternity on illegitimate kids that were in court trying to get fatherly support. So he, he just investigated their ears, and if the lobe was attached or not attached, like the father, that decided it. There was another great story about Susan McMillian who, um, oh my gosh, she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She was a looker and at least three men uh, married her. And they all had died rather young. And when she was married to Dr. McMillian, his children um, decided that she had served him a bowl of ice cream right before he died. So they wanted him disinterred so that they could uh, figure out if she poisoned him. So they found ice cream in the freezer and something with arsenic in it in the garage, and here we went back to court again. Well, the prosecuting attorneys, um, a junior one who wasn't too smart, sent all the hair samples to a laboratory in Dallas, and the judge found an old law that said you could not send criminal evidence to a laboratory out of town. So she was acquitted. And then I got to interview her afterwards in her kitchen where she served me coffee and cookies. <laughs> My final beat was politics. Uh, when I got to Arkansas, this was the early 70s. We had a Republican governor who was Winthrop Rockefeller. He was the first Republican governor of Arkansas since Reconstruction. He threw lavish parties, and this was before journalism ethics were really a thing, and we used to all just race to the shrimp bowl. Uh, after him came two Democrats, uh, Dale Bumpers and David Pryor, and they would invite us to picnics on the governor's mansion lawn. And in 1974, Dale Bumpers decided that he was going to run in the primary and challenge J. William Fulbright. Now, Fulbright had been a senator for nearly 30 years. He'd been the longest chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. A reporter called Gary Rice got Bumpers. I got Fulbright, and I was so nervous. I read everything I could about the man so I could ask him, intelligent questions. And then the other reporter and I and our managing editor decided to cover the election in a completely different way. Instead of going to all the stump speeches and hearing them over and over again, we decided to stay in town and research the financials. Well, Dale Bumpers was going for the common man vote. He asked for 10 and $20. Meanwhile, Fulbright was getting thousands and thousands from foreign countries, foreign interests, and also paying off poll workers. The night that Bumpers won, 
Senator Fulbright blamed my newspaper for his defeat. When I left in 1977, Pryor was governor, Bill Clinton was attorney general, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs>